have a moral compass. I have a magnet. This is the Blackwater Evercost. Quite apart from drawing the Grey Stripes' attentions away from my property, the voyage from Amalry to Southampton gave ample time to put Leviathan through its paces. It has many innovations to improve its capacity, efficiency, and abilities, and I wished to test as many of them as possible on this, its first official outing. If you visit Blackwater Castle, I'll be sure to give you a tour. My priorities are, as you might imagine, different from those of other airship designers, and far more prone to mechanical enhancement. Opulence and convenience are achieved by minimizing areas Count von Zeppelin emphasizes on his airliners, or going to lengths his company would not consider worthwhile. The result allows me to be conveyed in baronial style, if one uniquely my own, while sacrificing nothing which matters to me, and without incurring any of the nuisance which tends to accompany air travel. I may tell you more about it another time if you haven't the opportunity to see Leviathan in person, but I suspect I am wandering off topic. Arrival in the airship harbor outside Southampton produced a satisfying stir even among the experienced crewmen who worked there. Appreciation for the unusual design and size of my well-named craft is the sort of thing which pleases in any case, but this had the additional benefit of guaranteeing that the correct persons would know I had arrived. I would leave by railway in short order, and hoped that Leviathan's continued presence for a day or so would cause any would-be pursuers to believe I had also remained, at least for long enough to get well clear of the area, which of course is nothing like what happened. When I do not travel alone, I prefer to travel with two or three of my people. More is useful only in specific cases, and one always seems to be more than necessary, or fewer than needed. Fewer than needed seemed the more likely of the two, due to the flora of southern England's cheerful response to the recent rains. McThomas, having a pollen allergy, began sneezing off and on before we had even landed. Therefore, as well as McThomas, I brought River Fabrice. She has proven handy when traveling, has no pollen allergy, and was present already, and I was certain the Leviathan would make due with one fewer mechanic during the return north, skeleton crew though it be already. As I waited at the railway platform, having just sent McThomas to get our luggage stowed and Fabrice to send a parcel by post, I saw a trio of figures in grey cloaks among those already boarding. The three were doing a dreadful job of trying not to look like they were looking for someone. It wasn't what I had hoped for, but was more or less what I had expected. If they were still looking, they had not yet seen me. I smoothly stepped back a pace to put a pillar between us. I could hear McThomas trying to stifle a sneezing fit far down the platform, and sighed. At least he wasn't calling attention to my impromptu hiding place. Fabrice returned first. I apprised her of the situation, described the three grey stripe agents, since they would surely doff their distinctive cloaks once inside, and instructed her to board as one of the regular passengers. They would eventually identify her as one of mine, but an early advantage was an early advantage. McThomas was informed of the change, and we boarded as though there was never a thought of a third-party member, easily finding the compartment I had bought out to have plenty of space and peace to talk and think away from other passengers. One becomes used to the efficiency of owning one's means of transportation. I arrive, I board, we leave. 
Waiting for a quarter of an hour between taking one seat and beginning to move is excruciating, especially knowing there are members of the grey stripe somewhere in the cars behind me. When we were at last up to speed, I went to locate Fabrice so that I could coordinate our efforts, and to locate the agents so that I could circumvent theirs. I strolled casually through the cars, quite comfortable in the jostling and rocking motion of the train, McThomas trailing behind me with the portfolio case. Fabrice was soon located, and I nodded in brief acknowledgement, as I plausibly might to any young woman. The next car was the dining car, and beyond it another standard coach, in which rode the grey stripe agents. They studiously ignored our passing, doing the same when we came back the other direction. Along the way, McThomas gained his sea legs, as it were, and neither lost his balance nor gave away the fact that we knew who the agents were, and paused only once to stifle sneezes and blow his nose as we passed again through the dining car. I found myself bored within a few minutes of returning to my seat, and unfolded the compartment's table from the wall. My notes on the artifact weren't with me, but I could at least spend a pleasant few hours examining the thing itself. I set the portfolio case on the table, opened it, paused, and looked across the table into McThomas's startled face. He stammered in apologetic incomprehension. I... I... Yes, I know. They almost certainly switched it in the dining car as you used your handkerchief. And that's enough apology, I think. You may be sorry about that, but this does give us something interesting to do today. It's a cleverly made decoy. Feels almost identical to the real thing. Certainly looks alike from the outside, though these are fairly common. A duel of wits should be invigorating. I sent a visibly relieved McThomas to quietly summon Fabrice, who was informed of my plan and sent back to her seat with the decoy case. I ordered a small beverage from the dining car, and stationed McThomas there to receive the real case once acquired. This done, I loitered in apparent innocence just outside the door to the coach where Fabrice waited in her assigned seat. All pieces were in place. I hadn't long to wait until one of the grey stripe agents decided to go for a walk and entered through the door at the other end, holding the original portfolio case. Time to move, King to intercept. I entered the coach and, locking eyes with the agent, proceeded until I stood immediately before him, timing it so that he stopped at a spot just ahead of where Fabrice sat, across from a young boy. The boy appeared glad to have something to watch, though his otherwise distracted mother kept telling him, Ben, mind your own business. Hello, I said to the agent. I know who you are. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking, of course. Naturally, I know who you are. Several of my staff look forward to the monthly installments of your stories in the papers. Magnus Elphinstone, Baron of Blackwater, at your service. Confused, he took my proffered hand. Ogden, Archie Ogden, at yours, sir. Well, Agent Ogden, I wish to apologize in advance for causing you to admit failure to your superiors. I would prefer there to be honor and cooperation among villains, but it never seems to work that way, does it? You may as well prepare yourself and your two lackeys to report that, in the end, you lost the artifact. They are not lackeys. They are agents in good standing. I mean no disrespect, I assure you. I merely meant... Oh dear, I spilled my drink on your glove. Uh, please allow me to... Ah, you have a spare set. So resourceful, I should expect no less from a grey stripe lead operative. It would appear that I may be overmatched in this battle of wits after all. I salute you, sir, and I retreat to my compartment to reassess my situation. And so I did. 
Fabrice later reported that Ogden, somewhat baffled, watched me leave, then returned to the door he had entered by, where he met his compatriots and gave them the case which they took back into the dining car, while he cautiously followed me to determine if I had in fact gone to my private compartment. Having verified that fact by way of a quick glance through the compartment's door's window, he continued his nonchalant walk forward another couple of cars before returning down the row, past my compartment, and presumably to his seat. After a wait of a couple minutes to allow things to clear, Fabrice hurried back toward the dining car, holding the case she had switched with Ogden's as he changed his gloves. At the door, the other two agents suddenly came bustling in, the three of them nearly bowling each other over. They each made quick, gaze-averted apologies and continued on their way. For her part, Fabrice quietly set the case beside McThomas where he was having tea and a crumpet in the dining car, and then returned to her seat, flashing a mischievous smile at Ben's inquisitive expression. Sometime after this, the relative quiet of my compartment coach was interrupted by a slight commotion. The passenger conductor walked by my compartment's window, closely followed by a man in a tan suit who had apparently lost something. I'm absolutely certain I had merely set it beside my compartment's doorway before visiting the washroom. I'm a man of precise habits by nature and by occupation. Mr. Harris, you remember seeing it when I boarded, do you not? A railway attendant, apparently Mr. Harris, followed the conductor and passenger, nodding worriedly and wringing his hands. I thought nothing of it until McThomas arrived a while later to inform me that there was a third identical portfolio case on board. Finishing his tea in the dining car, McThomas had heard someone say behind him, That's it, right there. A moment later, the conductor said, Excuse me, sir, I'm sorry to trouble you. Behind him were a passenger and an attendant. Yes, sir, how may I help? It seems that the passenger, an architect by the name of Mr. Casey, had somehow misplaced a portfolio case which was the twin of the one sitting beside McThomas's table. With apologies, would it be possible to make sure the gentleman hadn't accidentally switched his with Mr. Casey's? No trouble whatever, said the gentleman as he set down his tea and laid the case on the table, explaining that he is himself an archaeologist and has a great respect for architects of whatever era. With a flutter, she opened the case to reveal the rather odd pieces of metal nestled within packing material. It was certainly not architectural plans, but the archaeologist wished Mr. Casey well on his search. Then, McThomas finished his tea as quickly as possible without drawing attention, and came to tell me that somehow we had the decoy again. We would also need to avoid alerting the railway crew that six of the passengers were in contest for the possession of yet another case that looked like the one they sought. This was complicated enough without the nominal authorities getting involved. This time I took the decoy, determined to exchange it for the real one and secure it in my compartment until time to disembark. After a hurried conference with Fabrice, it seemed that while Miss Pratt and Mr. Brooke, the two, uh, agents in good standing, knew she was working for me, Ogden had no idea as yet, even though they had to have met at least in passing during all this. Perhaps they were minimizing conversation to maintain some sort of secrecy. I doubted that situation would hold for much longer, but I would take advantage of it while I could. So it was that Ogden, as he found himself a vacant table and chair by the window of the dining car, also found himself approached by a breathless young mechanic. Oh, my stars! It's you! You're him! Mr. Ogden, I'm such a fan of your stories! Ogden immediately adopted that strange air one finds in many celebrities, somehow combining patience, patronization, and a supercilious good humor. He graciously accepted Miss Fabrice's adulation, and even consented to give her an autograph, 
which she assured him would hold a place of honor in her collection of stories. The autograph gave me plenty of time to make the switch, and by the time Fabrice took her leave of Ogden, I was standing beside the exit. Pratt and Brooke suddenly entered and zipped by me, quietly arguing about who was to blame for apparently losing the third case only a couple of minutes previously. Fabrice quickly found a newspaper to hide behind, and I dodged out the door behind the agents, moving as fast as dignity allowed toward the other end of the coach, where McThomas had just entered to see if he could be of service. About halfway to him, I passed Fabrice's empty seat, and across from it, a woman scolding her son. Benjamin Rufus Hill, where in the world did you get this? You're eleven years old now, and you must stop taking things that aren't yours. I was amused, but it was only in the interest of appearing polite that I turned when I heard her call out, Excuse me, to whom does this case belong? It was, of course, the third portfolio case. She was holding it aloft, and there could be no question about its resemblance to the others. I almost said that it was mine, but suddenly remembered I was at that moment actually carrying another one of them. Ogden, who had just come through the door from the dining car, began to raise his hand to claim it in a mirror image of my own, and then stopped for exactly the same reason. Our eyes locked, and we had a mutual silent realization that Mrs. Hill was at that moment holding the case with the artifact. I elbowed the archaeologist standing just behind me, who gratefully claimed his property from her and scurried through the forward door. After a moment of staring at each other, Ogden and I turned toward our respective cars and departed the coach. As soon as the door closed on our compartment, I snatched the case from McThomas and opened it. Excellent. It's the artifact. We need them to steal it. We what? It's the only way we can get them to stop trying to acquire it. Here, take this back. Ah, there you are, Fabrice. Take the decoy. I need you to get to the other side of whoever comes from the dying car. Be sure they know they have the real one. Within an hour, Agent Brooke found the opportunity to sneak up behind McThomas in the aisle of the forward general coach, as the latter regaled the hapless attendant Mr. Harris with interesting facts about Roman coins and belt buckles found surprisingly far north in Scotland. Behind Agent Brooke crept River Fabrice, eventually standing a few feet away, right next to the seat she originally occupied. Ben looked up at her quizzically, to which she grinned and held a finger to her lips. McThomas set down his portfolio case for a moment to aid his enthusiastic gesturing. What he picked up again in a moment was the case Agent Brooke had just switched. Brooke backed up a bit, unlatched the case he had just pilfered, and peeked inside. Closing the latches again produced a pair of loud clicks, and McThomas suddenly stopped his discourse to turn and look. He narrowed his eyes at Brooke. I know you. Brooke quickly set the case behind himself and gave a nervous smile, holding his empty hands in front of him to indicate that he wanted no trouble. I don't mean to interrupt, just listening to tales of archaeology. McThomas clutched his case to his chest and moved quickly forward and out of the car, begging the pardon of Attendant Harris as he squeezed past. Fabrice had by now replaced Brooke's case with her own and handed it to Ben, indicating that he should hide it. Just as he did so, Brooke turned to pick up his case and noticed Fabrice a mere yard away. He was startled and suspicious, but since she clearly carried nothing as she turned and exited into the dining car, and her seat had a conspicuous lack of anything on or around it, he had no good reason to think much of the incident. None of my people remained in the car by then to see his reaction, so I am admittedly guessing. Fifteen minutes later, Fabrice returned to her seat and gestured for Ben to give her the case. The boy balked and glowered at her. She responded by raising her eyebrows and pointing to his mother, thus threatening to get him in trouble if he didn't comply. He wilted a bit, sad that his part in the adventure might be concluding, 
but Febreze put one hand to her heart and held out her other, thanking him for being part of the caper and helping when she needed it. Ben looked down at the case for a moment, then drew it up from beneath the seat and gave it to Febreze. She gave an attaboy smile and surreptitiously saluted him before getting up to bring the case to my compartment. It is remarkable how full a conversation may be had without speaking. When McThomas opened the compartment door to admit Febreze, she had a concerned expression and was lifting the case up and down as though weighing it. It fails wrong. She set it on the table and opened it. Casey case. Blast it all. McThomas observed that young Ben has potential as a thief. Though inclined to agree, considering the speed at which he had once again exchanged cases, we had no time for such nonsense. To keep the railway authorities out of our hair at least, it would behoove us to quietly get Mr. Casey's architectural drawings back to him. Fabrice was assigned to place it somewhere out inside Casey's compartment, being the only one who wasn't known to the passengers in that car. It occurs to me now that it was the only part of the journey which went as planned. She returned in ten minutes, signaling success as she passed on the way to her seat. At the station, as I opened the compartment door a final time, an embarrassed Mr. Casey passed by, in the process of explaining to Attendant Harris that his portfolio case had been elsewhere in his compartment the entire time, and how foolish he felt about having bothered the train staff about it. Yes, I ended up with the decoy, the grey stripe with the artifact, but all was not lost. The notes and full-size diagrams spent the journey safely stowed in the mail car, being delivered from an invented person in Southampton to an address in Glenshee for me to pick up. I primarily wanted the artifact itself for my collection, to save myself some time, and, of course, to deprive the grey stripe of it. And so I arrived at Blackwater Castle, somewhat irritated but in possession of all I require to reproduce the artifact. I did so, and once it was built I began experiments to identify its use. The gap uh, did indeed accept the topaz egg mounted by its brass pins. Less than surprising, yes. A great many mysteries remain. At this point, still not knowing what was mounted on the upper arm near the gap, my work has narrowed to utilizing the tube in an attempt to usefully direct light to the egg. An electric light source and one or more lenses are clearly the tools needed, but without knowing the nature, strength, or shape of the light and lenses required, there are an enormous number of variables to take into account. I have set up a mobile screen to capture the light diffuse as it passes through the egg, and easily test a range of focal lengths. Thus have I been occupied during many hours since my return, accompanied by an assistant, when occasionally needed, and by the apparently omnipresent cat, though never needed. Neither Greystripe nor Intrepid League have troubled me in the intervening weeks, and I have been careful to avoid their attention. The Greystripe believes they have won this round. The League is more clueless than usual. This clearly suits my purpose as well. Apart from desiring time to complete certain projects and avoid further trouble as I analyze the Topaz egg, there remains the question of the thing I retrieved from St. Kilda. I assure you, it has not been forgotten in all this. A couple of hours ago, a configuration of light, lenses, and screen showed a moment of great promise. Though it is not in my nature to delay a discovery, it occurred to me that achieving some part of the goal while making the Ethercast would be interesting. I paused then and moved the Ethercast transmitter to the laboratory in case I am, in fact, able to make sense of this and, in the moment, share my triumph with you, dear colleagues. 
During the past few minutes, I have, while speaking to you, continued the experiment in the hopes of doing so. I'll describe what I've seen here and give details as it unfolds. Depending on the configuration of lenses and illumination in the tube, the light spreads from the egg to the screen, as I have just described, which has for the most part stubbornly refused to show anything other than a flat sky blue or some slight warping at the edge caused merely by the egg's curves. The complex and almost random looking occlusions and faults in the topaz should make some sort of variation in the light. What I saw earlier was a faint dimness in the center of the screen. It looked like the jagged lines seen in cracked pottery, but very fuzzy. I am currently attempting to sharpen it more and... Oh, there it is. Moving the screen a few inches closer and adjusting the achromatic doublet brought the dark area's edges suddenly into focus. It isn't a crack, though perhaps in the egg it literally is. But what I am seeing is definitely the outlines, the map of what appears to be a mountainous island. I can't see clearly beyond a few inches in the center of the screen. Perhaps if I turn the egg slightly, yes, it works. The edges rolled off and out of focus on one side and rolled right in on the other. It's a dizzying effect. There appear to be other islands visible or is this all land and those mountain ranges? I don't recognize anything yet. The area between may instead be land, looking deceptively as watery and mottled as the reflections on the roof of a bathhouse. But one thing is certain, this is a map, somehow encapsulated in that egg. When I turn it fully, the map comes around and repeats without seam or break. What vertigo-inducing cartography would find this useful? I must explore it further. There is surely an answer. <laughs> now that I have the configuration in hand, all its knowledge shall be mine. <laughs> Hidden science, exploration, mysteries, and puzzles, each chained to the next in a great web of discovery. This, dear colleagues, is what drives us to feats of madness, to defiance of all law and convention, to the very edges of mortal mind's capabilities. This, my fellow mad scientists and outcasts, is vindication and fulfillment. <laughs> Uh, the only other creature here to see this with me is the cat, and he seems more interested in the exaltation than its cause. Silly thing, you can't know what is happening here, or imagine its import. But you do rather stare, don't you? Those enormous blue eyes set in your steel-gray fur, wide with wonder at my sudden jubilation. Honestly, I don't remember them being that wide before. The strange motion of the projected map seems to have affected my balance. My ears have a strange roaring, like I have stood too quickly. I would sit if I could find a chair, but I seem unable to look away. The edges of my vision are rolling like the edges of the map. I feel I am spinning into blue pools, and I know I am motionless. In a silent room, I am deafened. Without moving, I fall.
Blackwater Acrecast is written, produced, and performed by Nicholas Jovian. Additional voices by Kayla Thomas. Beginning music is by Derek and Brandon Fichter. They can be found at dbfichter.bandcamp.com. Ending music is by Barrage. Follow the Baron on Instagram at Baron Blackwater. Also, visit lordblackwater.com to be the featured entertainment. And thanks for listening. Be sure to clearly tag your luggage.